So Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. And when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek to destroy, will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And Herod when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And Ramah there is a voice heard, lamentation, and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. The story of the wise men has always been a point of fascination to me because they come from a foreign country. They come from another place. They, they come from another culture, from another religion possibly altogether. And they come to worship Christ, the newborn king. They knew who he was. They knew to be looking for him. They they knew that the star was significant. And this story has been told a number of times, a number of different ways. But basically, the, theologians and scholars over the years have tried to fill in some blanks. Like, how did they know that this star meant that a king was born? How did they know to be looking for this star? And so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so the popular telling of the story is that you have these wise men that are in the east around Babylon who as Eastern cultures did in that day, and as some Eastern cultures still do, examine the stars, examine the sky. and they, they partook in astrology and tried to make sense or come up with prophecies or come up with signs based on what the stars were doing or what was going on in the heavens. And, and they come across this star, and this is one they hadn't seen before. This is a new one. This is 
one that's exceedingly bright. There must be a divine sign, and we have to find what this means. And so they start to consult all the holy books, all the, all the scriptures, all of the writings from all the centuries, and they come across a copy of the Old Testament law that might have been left over from when, when the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. This is, this is all oral tradition that's been handed down, but it, it makes sense how this could happen. And they come across a Bible verse in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. And so these wise men are looking at the sky, they see the star. What does this mean? They go to the scriptures, they find it in the book of Numbers, a star shall rise out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. And they say, that must be what this is. It's over in that direction. That's where this would be happening. This, this king that this Bible verse is talking about has been born. We must go and pay homage to him. We must go and worship him. And if we stop telling the story right there, we don't dig any further therein, we have a really miraculous, inspirational story about these foreign kings that come to Israel... To worship Christ. And that's what we have. But Numbers chapter 24 does not tell us that in 2,000 years a sweet little baby boy is going to be born. A benevolent, nice, loving king is going to be born. That's not what Numbers chapter 24 is talking about. You read Numbers 24, 17, the Bible says, I shall see him. But not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. If you're an Israelite reading this, this is good news. If you're a pagan, a pagan foreigner reading this, this is not good news. These words were spoken by Balaam when the Israelites were going through the wilderness en route to the promised land. And a, and a man named Balak had hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. And I don't know if you all remember the story of the talking donkey. But Balaam is riding his donkey to the place where he's going to meet with Israel and he's going to pronounce a curse on them. And the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway. So the donkey's like, I'm not going that way. I'm taking a left-hand turn here. And Balaam doesn't see the angel. And so he's wondering why his donkey is making a sudden random turn. And so he hits his donkey, tells his donkey to get back on the road. They get back on the road. They ride a little further. The angel of the Lord again. Donkey turns again. Balaam hits his donkey again. Donkey gets back on the road. Donkey's going forward. This time when the angel of the Lord shows up, the donkey really freaks out, takes a wild turn, smashes uh, Balaam's foot into a retaining wall, and Balaam gets really mad, and he just starts beating on this donkey. And the Bible says that God opened the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey says, paraphrasing New Leland translation, why are you beating me? I've always been a good donkey. Don't you think I'm trying to help you out here? And Balaam, as Old Testament Bible figures were not surprised that an animal is talking to them. Says, Well, you just haven't been doing what I wanted you to do. And 
the angel of the Lord shows up and says, he saved your life. And the angel of the Lord told Balaam, this is the point of this, told Balaam that when you speak to Israel, you will only speak the words that God puts into your mouth. And so when Balaam went to speak to Israel, instead of pronouncing a curse on Israel, he pronounced a blessing on Israel and a curse on Israel's enemies, which really upset Balak because Balak had paid him to do the opposite. And part of that blessing and part of that curse that Balaam told Israel was this verse in Numbers chapter 24. Balaam said, I shall see him. Who? Christ. I shall see him, but not now. In other words, he's not coming today. I shall see him. I shall behold him, but not nigh. That means not here. So Balaam knew that he was going to see Christ. It wasn't going to be in his earthly lifetime, and it wasn't going to be right here, right now. He knew he would see Christ on Judgment Day. And he says that a star shall rise out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. We'll talk about what that means. But then he concludes the statement by saying, or he concludes this verse by saying, that he would smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. To boil that down real quick, that means that the Gentile enemies of Israel would face God's judgment. Now, if you're a wise man living in Babylon at the time of the birth of Christ, and you see the star in the sky, and there's a sign in the heavens saying that something divine is happening, and you consult the scriptures, and it says, this star is going to rise, this child is going to be born, and he is going to destroy his enemies, and you're on the side of his enemies, that's not good news. So what do these wise men do? They traveled to Israel Mm -hmm. to worship him. The journey of the wise men is not just simply a journey of confession, of pointing out who Christ is. It's not just an incident in scripture that shows us the fulfillment of God's promises, although it is. What you see with the journey of the wise men is that this is an act and a journey of repentance and faith and submission. He is the Lord, he is God, he is the Messiah, he will judge the quick and the dead, and we are going to throw ourselves at his mercy and submit to him. That's essentially what the wise men were doing here. The wise men journey gets us to looking at three crucial things here. The first thing it gets us to looking at is who is Christ? Who is he? What role does he play? Who is he to us? And by the way, that's been the central message of this entire series this Christmas. Who is he? How do we respond to him? Secondly, we're going to see the wise men's response. There's a reason the Bible calls them wise men. Three, third thing, we're going to see King Herod's response. So let's talk about who Christ is. Verse 2 says, these wise men came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. They didn't have GPS back then. But they had the star. But the star is leading this general direction. And so I guess they figured that if you want to find the Messiah of Israel and information about him, the best place to go would be Jerusalem. You've got the temple there. You've got the chief priest there. You've got the brightest minds 
in Jewish theology there, they'd be able to point him to you. Maybe they already know he's born. Maybe they're already celebrating. And so they show up. They, they came and they asked, where is the king of the Jews? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, when they, when they come in, they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They're not referring to a mere earthly king. And everybody knew that they were not referring to a mere earthly king. We know that everybody knows because the Bible tells us that when they came asking this question, King Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When they came saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod didn't say, here I am. When they said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod didn't say, well, let me introduce you to my oldest son who will assume the throne after I'm dead. Uh, by the way, that idea did not set well with Herod. You know, Herod killed his own sons. Uh, he was afraid that they were going to take the throne from him. He went to war with his own boys over this. When they ask, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod calls all the chief priests together and says, and bear in mind, people have been looking for the birth of Messiah. They've been looking for Messiah to arrive at this point. They, they know the time frame is growing close. Herod grabs all the priests and pulls them together and says, where is this Christ supposed to be born? And they start quoting the scripture to him. So they know that he's asking about the Christ. They know he's asking about the Messiah. And they know, the wise men know, that this is not a mere earthly king, but that this is the Messiah. Herod knows that this is the Messiah. The, the, the priests know that this is the Messiah. And you have two different responses happening here. The wise men coming to worship and Jerusalem and Herod being troubled by this because they know that what's coming is judgment they know that what's coming is justice they know that what's coming the wise men knew what was coming was redemption basically business as usual was no longer going to be business as usual it's an impact that's who he is Numbers 24, 17, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy the children of Sheth. As I mentioned, Balaam was prophesying about the coming Messiah, the Christ. And Balaam knew that he would see Christ, not in this world, but on the day of judgment. Balaam prophesied that the Lord would come. He said that he would be the star out of Jacob. The star. What's that mean? The star. They put a star on the side of the Dallas Cowboys helmet, and that hasn't, that hasn't shown too brightly lately, has it? Uh, scripturally speaking, a star. Where do we see stars in the Bible? You look in the book of Revelation, and Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand as he stands among the seven candlesticks. And Jesus told us in Revelation chapter 1 that those seven candlesticks were the seven churches of Asia. And the seven stars were the angels to the churches of Asia. We see in the book of Revelation that the dragon is cast from heaven and his tail draws a third of the stars of heaven down to the earth. We know that that's not a literal event because we know that when you look up in the sky and you see stars, those are solar bodies, suns, so to speak, millions of light years away. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, 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 those things are 10 times the size of Earth. You, you can't crash one of those into the Yucatan Peninsula. No, there's a symbolism here. And in the book of Revelation, when the dragon is cast from heaven, that's Satan being cast down from heaven. And his tail drawing a third of the stars of heaven with him, those stars are angels that took his side, and they were expelled from heaven with him. We now call them demons. But the star is a holy messenger. The star shall rise out of Jacob. God's divine holy messenger will rise out of Jacob. And Jesus Christ is that messenger. Jesus Christ is described in John chapter 1 as the word of God. You know, when Jesus came to the earth, he, didn't, he wasn't just born, look around for a little bit, try to assume the throne, get crucified, and then rise again. No, what did Jesus do? He spent his earthly ministry enlightening us on the scriptures. Brother Jim was talking about during Sunday school this morning about how God gave us certain revelations at certain times. We started with the five books of the law, the Pentateuch, if you will. And then by divine revelation, he, he unveiled the books of the Psalms and the books of history. We, you know, we're talking about King David and his history and the, and the history of the nation of Israel and, and how in latter times we got the New Testament, which shines more light on God's truth. And when Jesus came, that's what he did. He spoke to us. He taught us. He explained to us what the law meant. He explained to us what God really wanted, what the sacrifices meant. He explained to us what God's plan with man was. He preached the gospel to us. He preached to us repentance. He preached to us redemption. He preached to us God's love. He, he demonstrated God's love. We studied John chapter 4 this morning, the Samaritan woman at the well went and said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Is not this man the Christ? And I got to thinking when we were going over that verse, Jesus knew everything this woman did. Now I want you to think about that Samaritan woman at the well. She was such an outcast. And I believe Brother Jim did a good job of bringing this out this morning. She was such an outcast that not only did the nation of Israel reject her because she was Samaritan, but her own people rejected her because she was such a wretched sinner. The reason she was going to the, the well at noon by herself as opposed to that morning with the, all the rest of the women is because even Samaritan women have standards and she didn't meet it. Nobody wanted anything to do with her. In fact, after the townspeople came out, they believed in Jesus. They said, we believe in Jesus, but not because you told us. Don't you get to feeling good about this? Don't you feel accomplished about this? You're still that sorry woman down at the end of Mayberry Street. All right? I mean, they, they didn't give her any love whatsoever. He knew everything about her. Called her out. Pointed her attention to it. But loved her anyway. She was the reason he had to go through Samaria. And that's Jesus with us. He knows everything about you, everything that nobody else knows. The stuff you haven't told even your closest relatives about because you don't know how they respond to that. Jesus knows it and he loves you anyway. He went to the cross to pay for that sin, on the, to pay for that sin, to take God's judgment for that sin. He was buried and then he rose again the third day. The star out of Jacob. He would also be the scepter out of Israel. That word scepter, it indicates authority. Not only is Jesus going to be the star, the divine messenger, the Christ, the one who gives his life for our sins and 
teaches us the way that God would have us to go, but he's also the scepter, he's also the king, he's also the conquering king. See, Jesus was not conquered in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. The crucifixion was not a surprise. It was not an ambush attack. It was not a grand betrayal which caught everybody by surprise and upended the kingdom. That's not what happened. What happened was Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be crucified. But he also knew what his death on the cross would accomplish. And then he rose again the third day. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered wrath. He conquered all of it. See, he's the scepter. He's the king. He's the conquering king. The lion of Judah. Yeah. It's not an accident that when C.S. Lewis tried to put the gospel in the story form so that people would read the gospel without realizing they were being preached to, that he made the, the Christ figure of his story a lion. All right? He's the conqueror. And when Jesus comes back, he's not going to come back meek and mild. He's going to come back as the conquering king. He's going to establish his kingdom. And he is going to set right everything that has been done wrong by man's sin. Now when Jesus does this, he's going to judge, the Bible says, the quick and the dead. And he'll bring justice and judgment. And Balaam prophesied about this. And the wise men sought the Christ who would change the course of human events. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He changed the course of human events. The turning point of human history goes from 0 AD to 33 AD. That time frame, I know there's people have done the math and said that that's off a little bit, but that 33 years of Jesus' life, no matter what number you put on it, that 33 years of Jesus' life is the turning point of human history. Secular history records it. When I studied world history in college, we studied about Jesus. Now, they didn't tell us that Jesus saved us from our sin. They didn't tell us the theology of Jesus, but they did tell us the impact that Jesus had. Because he totally turned the Roman Empire on its head, flipped it upside down without an armed army. Oh, he had an army, all right, an army of evangelists and preachers and teachers and missionaries and apostles that over the course of a couple of hundred years converted the Roman Empire. But it all goes back to him. Even secular history records that the changes in the Roman Empire, which changed the way the world operated, all goes back to Jesus. You study other religions, non-Christian religions, and they address who Jesus is. They, don't get, they may not give him the credit as being God's only begotten son, as secular history does not. They may not give him the credit of saving the world, as secular history does not. But they will at least address his existence and try to explain who he was, because that's how significant Jesus is. All religions address it. He impacted the entire world, the entire human history. Did he impact us? And if he did, how have you responded to him? The wise men, this is why they're wise. They sought Jesus. They looked for him. 
They said in verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews, where we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him? So it's significant that they're looking for him, but it's also significant why they're looking for him. They're not looking for Jesus so they can overcome him or discredit him or kill him as King Herod did. They're not looking for Jesus so they can get some sort of a windfall, blessing, or something out of him. They're looking for Jesus so that they can worship him. The Old Testament scriptures promise judgment and justice and judgment upon the unbelieving Gentiles when Christ arrived. The wise men know that Christ has arrived so that they know the judgment is coming. And so they come to worship. Instead of running from it, instead of trying to deter it or derail it, they come to worship. You've got to understand, this is an incredible act of surrender. They left their own king behind in Babylon or wherever they came from to worship Jesus as being king. They come in repentance. They come in faith. They come submitting themselves to the Lord and, and submitting him, themselves to his mercy. They come before the Lord saying, we deserve whatever you give us in terms of punishment, but we know that you'll have mercy upon us. Do we do that? I'm afraid the world has gotten it in their heads that God owes them something. God owes us something. He owes us a blessing. God should be better to us. If God is love, he would make me happier. We have become the spoiled bratty kids of human history. When we come to Jesus, are we looking for what Jesus can do for us? I need this new job. I need these finances. I need this house. I need this car. I need this promotion. I need this illness to go away. I, I need to live in a different place. I need my dream to come true. I'm going to try this Jesus thing out. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to walk straight for a little while, see if this thing works out for me. And you have preachers who are making a lot of money preaching this message. I'm not going to call them out this week. But this is going on. If God gave us what we deserve, it would be his wrath and his eternal punishment. I'm going to tell you, and I can point out a whole bunch of people who are worse than me. Okay, I mean, I can point out a lot more people that are better, but I can point to a lot of people and say, man, I, I can be like that Pharisee and say, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this horrible publican over here, right? I mean, you know, because, I mean, I don't smoke crack. I've got that going for me. Never, never even tried it, okay? Um, I don't cheat on my wife. I, I don't cheat on my taxes intentionally. Um, tax code's a little, a little complex. I've had to get people to help me out with this over the year, but we'll leave that alone. IRS, please don't be listening. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a politician, uh, despite what some people would say about me. Um, you know, so I can talk about all these different ways I'm better than the next guy down. But the problem is the next guy down is not the standard. He is not the standard. God is the standard. And when we look at things in God's standard, I don't even come close to measuring up. Ray Comfort were here. He'd say, Leland, you think you're basically a good person? I'm like, oh, come on, man. Don't start this on me. He would say, have you ever, have you ever told a lie? 
I'm like, well, yeah. Um, you know, Jessica calls me on my cell phone. I'm in the McDonald's drive-thru. Um, what you doing? Nothing. That's a lie. Okay. And that's just one of the little ones. Okay. I mean, I've told bigger ones than that. Um, have you ever told a lie? Well, yes. That was a make you a liar. Okay. Um, have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Yes. All right. I stole a pen from the bank one time. That's as far as I'm going with that confession. All right. So, so you're a thief and the Bible says, uh, Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever done that? And, I, and so that, that Bible calls that adultery. Um, have, you ever ta- have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Yes, in a number of different ways. You know, taking the Lord's name in vain does not necessarily mean that you use his name as a cuss word, although that's how most people do this. Yeah. When you say that God is leading you to do something and God is not leading you to do something, you're taking the Lord's name in vain. That's right. When you blame God for 9-11... You're taking the Lord's name in vain. That's called blasphemy. And so Ray Comfort would sit here and he'd say, Leland, by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer at heart. If God were to judge you based on his standard, how would he find you? He would find me guilty. It doesn't matter that I don't smoke crack. It doesn't matter that I haven't stolen a car. I've never robbed a bank. That one actually counts, sounds kind of fun. But no, 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 no. See, that's what's in the heart. You see, that, that's, that's what condemns. Right? So when I come before God, I'm in no place to say, God, I have preached your gospel at Life Point Baptist Church. I have helped all these people. You owe me something. God says, dude, you ain't even begun to offset that balance. <laughs> Leland, you hereby stand convicted of robbing the First National Bank. How do you plead? Well, guilty, but I did ring the bell for the Salvation Army for a few years. You know, <laughs> that's not going to get me. Off, that's not going to get me off the charges, is it? Yeah. Ringing the bell for the Salvation Army, Brother Wayman, won't even get you out of a speeding ticket. All right? I mean, so, so will we stand before God guilty, condemned? Wise men understood this. Wise men today understand this. So when we come before the Lord, we come before the Lord in submission and repentance and asking for his mercy, asking for his grace, asking for his redemption. The way King David did in, in Psalm 51 where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. Straighten me out, God. I've prayed that prayer many times. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but sometimes I fail and sometimes I sin. And sometimes I compromise and sometimes... I allow myself to think evil thoughts, and, and, and sometimes if I'm really mad at somebody, I'll embellish a lot of evil thoughts about them, and, and the Bible tells us that unjust anger is the same as committing murder. Yeah. So I'm a murderer at heart. If I told y'all why, you'd understand it. You'd say, yeah, I feel that way too, but, but that doesn't excuse it. And so what I have to say, Lord, forgive me. King David said I was conceived and sin and I was shaping in iniquity created me a clean heart renew a right spirit within me that's how you come before the Lord that's how you come before Jesus and that's what these wise men were doing they came to the Lord they came to him bearing gifts they had been to Jared no um, they came with gold now the thing about these gifts is they're symbolic they're valuable they're expensive they likely funded Joseph and Mary's escape into Egypt all right, but they're symbolic too. Now, when Jessica and I 
are married. We are married. We got married, and we did that a number of years, 20 years ago. No. It's only seemed like five or six. The beard's starting to show that. Um, bought Jessica a wedding ring. And the first wedding ring I bought Jessica was $45, which was a lot of money to us at the time. I mean, taking on a $45 investment in our first year of marriage, that was a big deal. But the price was only part of it. It was what the wedding ring symbolized. Exactly. All right, now the rings we've got on now are not that much more expensive. I think this one Jessica bought for me at Brownwood Reunion a couple of years ago. It's got engraving on it that says, Christ loved the church. Okay? It, it, it was $20. But I, this thing never leaves my finger. Yeah. I guard it with my life. Not because I'm worried about losing the $20, but it's what the ring symbolizes. Exactly. It's our marriage. As Christ loved the church comes from the, the scripture in Ephesians that says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That he could redeem unto himself a bride that was spotless, right? Yes. That's what that reminds me of every time I look at it. When she and I are having a discussion. I look at my ring and it says as Christ loved the church. I'm like, okay, I can lose this one. Not only because she's right, but also because it's what a loving husband would do. And so it's what the, it's what the gift represents, right? It's what it stands for. So the gold represents the, that Christ is king, his royalty, his authority, yes. his exousia power, all right? The frankincense, incense, they burned it in the temple to symbolize the prayers of the people being lifted up to God, all right? That's his divinity being honored. The myrrh is his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you're trying to keep track of all that, you can look up the hymn and it's all in there. Amen. But they're, they are worshiping Jesus for who he is. And that's how the wise men responded to him. Amen. Sadly, sadly, the majority of the world responds to Jesus the way King Herod responded to Jesus. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, that when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now think about this. King Herod and Jerusalem yeah. are troubled. Y'all know what happened when these wise men showed up to ask where is the Messiah, where is the Messiah he's been born? We know he's been born, we just need to find him. Y'all know what happened? King Herod threw a fit, and the stock market crashed. That's what happened. Price of oil went up to about $200 a barrel, and Microsoft dropped down to $5 a share. That's, that's what happened, essentially. All Jerusalem was troubled. The Messiah's here. This is bad news. Yeah. This is bad news. We're all in danger here. Why were they all in danger? Because they were never serving God. They convinced themselves they were serving God. They were working in the temple and doing the religion thing and running their religious bookstores and, and selling their sacrifices in the temple court and King Herod was building up the temple to look like a nice, glorious structure, and, and everything was going well. And if you were a good, holy, righteous man, you were well off financially, and your financial wealth was proof that God loved you, and he loved you better than those poor people, and you could treat those poor people as poorly as you wanted to treat them. That was the mindset of the Pharisees. It's the mindset of some people in, in the world today. Yeah. You know, I did what's right, therefore I am upper middle class. And these people working behind the counter at McDonald's 
They're trash. They're obviously there because they got a drug problem. So if I want to chew them out and spit in their face because my hamburger came with pickles after I clearly said no pickles, I'm justified in doing that because if they had half a brain, they'd learn not to put pickles in my burger. Okay, I'm being facetious here. <laughs> Jessica and I, I was pastoring a church where the song leader bragged about throwing a whopper at the lady behind the counter. <laughs> Guys, that's not us. No. That's not Jesus. No. That's not who we represent. No. But that's Jerusalem. Yeah. That's the mentality in that city. They were so self-righteous. And Herod was king. And the arrival of Messiah means that Herod's out of a job. And that was like Herod's worst fear. I mean, he killed his own sons to make sure he kept his job. His worst fear is that he's out of a job. He finds out the Messiah's been born. I'm out of a job. And if the Messiah's here, the high priest, they don't need him no more. Or the chief priest, or the Sanhedrin. Instead of going, see, we told you we were right. The Messiah's here. They're like, oh, no. This wasn't supposed to happen in our lifetime. I remember being in seminary when I was younger and dumber. I wasn't dumb for going to seminary. I was dumb for the attitude I had. Um, when Brother Cully was teaching us his end times class, and he said that he thought that the tribulation was going to start within the next two years. I'm a first-year student. It's a four-year course of study. I'm like, I'm never going to make it out of this school. I'll never get to pastor a church. I said, Brother Cully, if that's going to happen, I said this in class, I said, if that's going to happen, then I'm not going to have enough time. I'll never pastor a church. Why am I even here? And Brother Cully laughed at my ignorance in the compassionate way that he could. And he said, Brother Leland, you'll have all the time to minister as God wants you to minister. And here we are 15 years later. And y'all are still wishing I'd wrap this thing up. The amen was before the wrapping it up, so I got you. All right. But that's King Herod. That's Jerusalem. So what did they do? King Herod did what King Herod knew how to do. Like, well, okay, we know he's in Bethlehem. We know that it's been some time within the past two years. We'll just kill all the babies two years old and younger. And go ahead, and, and the Bible says in the coast thereof, too. So he didn't just stay in town. They, they went out in the country. They went down the county roads. He wants to make sure that he's got him. But he didn't. King Herod's story is really kind of tragic. Because Herod thought that he could get one over on Jesus. He thought he could get one over on God. He thought he could derail God's plan. You cannot do that because God already knows what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And he will use your action to further his agenda. Thought he could get by with it. You know, when I, when I witness to people, which doesn't happen nearly as often as it should, but when I do, sometimes I hear people say, well, me and God have our own arrangement. No, 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 no. The arrangement is in writing. If you're trying to operate outside that written arrangement, the arrangement that you have is that you've agreed to go to hell. We don't need to be like King Herod. Don't be afraid that the Lord will return before you have a chance to see your grandkids. Don't be afraid that the Lord will return before you have an opportunity to go to college or start your career. Don't be afraid that the Lord's return is going to mess up this plan you've got for your life because that shows you that your heart's in the wrong place. We need to be like these wise men. He's here. 
we need to go to him. See, all this goes right back. What we've done here over the past several weeks is we started out Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we studied back then how that was a sign to King Ahaz, that he had the choice to repent or to be judged. Yeah. And everything since then has gone right back into that concept. Yeah. Do you know the Lord is your Savior? <laughs> is your hope in heaven and eternity that he paid for your sins on the cross and that you've been cleared from that debt to God because he gave his life on the cross for your sins? Is that your hope? Is that your belief? Is that what drives you? If not, today needs to be the day of repentance. And if you have accepted the Lord as your Savior, but you have drifted from his presence, now maybe you haven't been drinking and smoking and all the little sins that we preachers like to pick on when we're in the pulpit, you know, all the stuff that we don't do. The stuff that we do, we don't tell you about. Maybe you haven't been doing none of that. But maybe your relationship with Christ has become more distant. Or maybe it's become more about you and what you want God to do in your life. Then you need to be about these wise men. Be like these wise men and set that aside. And return into the presence of the Lord. You have that decision to make. If you have a decision to make that you want to make public this morning, you can do that during our time of invitation.